Teacher preparation is a common punching bag in American education. With little evidence that traditional programs boost classroom effectiveness, some would simply eliminate requirements that teachers undergo pre-service training. Others call for teacher prep to become far more practical, with greater emphasis on gaining classroom experience through student teaching. But is there a third way? Could it be that the key to making teacher preparation valuable is changing what prospective teachers are taught? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Daniel Willingham, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and author of the new article, Unlocking the Science of How Kids Think, that will appear in the summer 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Dan, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thanks, Marty. Glad to be here. So your article is subtitled, A New Proposal for Reforming Teacher Education, and as I said at the outset, you're hardly the only one calling for change in this area, but your diagnosis of the problem and your prescription for what to do about it are novel, at least to me. So let's start with the diagnosis. What's the problem in your view, and how did you become aware of it? So diagnosis is actually a pretty interesting way to put it because um, the, the first thing I want to be really clear about is I do have an idea of what I think is wrong, but I think we, uh, we being education researchers in general, don't have the data we would really need to properly diagnose the problem. So with, starting with that caveat, let me tell you what I think the problem is. Uh, I think the problem is that teachers are taught content during teacher education about how children learn, but the way they're taught that content ends up meaning that it's not a very high utility to them. We certainly know that teachers think that what they learn during their preparation is not very valuable. There are a number of surveys showing that. And so I've tried to be um, a little more specific about what it is they're learning um, and uh, why the, the content that could be potentially really useful to them sort of gets lost in the shuffle. So that's the way in which my uh, proposal differs from other proposals. I'm a little more hopeful than others have been that teacher preparation can be more valuable. Uh, I, I just think we need to change the content of what teachers are taught. Now, virtually all teacher preparation programs do require coursework in your field of educational psychology and licensing exams like the Praxis II test prospective teachers' knowledge of prominent theories. Why isn't that enough? Yeah, in fact, I think it's too much. So I think um, that there's good content in there uh, that teachers are asked to learn, but then there's a lot of stuff that's useful if you're a researcher but not useful if you're a practitioner that teachers are asked to learn. So unlike um, some others who preceded me in this area, uh, instead of sort of starting off with, let me think about what teachers should have in mind when they're in the classroom, I actually start with the science of educational psychology. Uh, and I note that there are different types of statements that scientists make in their field. So one statement that scientists make are observations of the world, things that we notice are consistent about the world. Then a second type of statement are theoretical statements where uh, we try to summarize these observations with a small set of uh, principles that can be very broadly applied. 
And what I argue uh, in the article is that the first type of statement is very useful to teachers, or it certainly has the potential to be very useful to teachers. This is summary, uh, summary statements about what kids are generally like, how kids generally, generally learn, what their emotions are usually like in particular situations, what, what motivates them. What's not useful are theories. Um, and the reason theory, and, and in fact, this gets right at the heart of what surveys say teachers didn't like about their um, preparation. They say it was overly theoretical. And so I think the problem with theories, there are a couple of problems with theories. One big one is that theories for, are designed for researchers, and they're designed to move research forward. So a theory has to do more than just summarize existing observations. It has to generate new predictions. It has to go out on a limb. Uh, and what that means is every theory ends up being proven wrong at some point. And that's how science moves forward. We're continually proposing new theories that we hope get better and better. But in order to propose a theory that's better than what we have now, you have to take some risks and generate some new predictions. So by asking future teachers to learn theories, we are really asking them to learn things that are bound to become outdated once they're in practice. So asking, um, asking people to learn theories is, is essential if they're going to be a, uh, a researcher, uh, but I think it ends up backfiring uh, for practitioners. So can you give me an example of a theory that illustrates that problem? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, a, a great example would be Piaget. And again, you mentioned Praxis. If you look uh, at the uh, the guide that Educational Testing Service, which, uh, which writes Praxis, uh, if you look at the guide they put out, Piaget and Vygotsky are two of the theorists. There's a list of theorists that they suggest you should uh, study and know if you're going to take this exam. So Piagetian theory was extremely influential in developmental psychology. Um, but you know, Piaget died uh, a few decades ago, and since that time, much of what developmental psychology uh, has focused on is exploring that theory and showing that the theory is, uh, uh, while very influential in generating new theories, the theory is uh, not correct. Uh, and one of the generalizations you could make about the way in which it's incorrect is that it underestimates what children are capable of learning. Another way in which the theory ended up not really being very accurate is that it was a stage theory, and it proposed that children go through set developmental stages. And work since then has shown that the child development is much more fluid than Piaget uh, depicted it, uh, and the, the stages, um, if they exist at all, are, are not nearly so rigid uh, as he described them. So if I'm an aspiring researcher in educational psychology, it's useful, perhaps even essential for me to understand Piaget's influence on the field, even if much of the theory was ultimately shown to be wrong. But if I'm a prospective teacher, that's all just going to be a distraction that gets in the way of my efforts to apply modern cognitive science in the classroom. That's exactly right. And, and in fact, if you 
um, there, there's a real danger. If you look at, a, at an educational psychology textbook, you'll see that all, Piaget is, is Piagetian theory is described in almost all of these textbooks, and then it will be followed by two or three perfectly accurate pages of uh, ways in which we now know that that Piagetian theory is uh, is lacking. Uh, so there's a real danger. First of all, I mean, it's it's a little hard to see why we would ask future teachers to learn this theory and then learn all the ways that the theory is wrong. Uh, so that's one thing. It seems like a little bit of wasted motion. But the second thing is there's a real danger that you'll kind of forget the caveats, and the main thing you'll remember is the theory. Uh, and so then you're sort of walking around with inaccurate uh, information about how kids learn. So teachers tell us that their preparation programs are too theoretical in their orientation. Lots of observers tend to agree with that uh, statement, and they then propose, all right, so let's do much, much more in the way of student teaching, learning by experience, uh, really cut down on coursework, but you're not willing to give up on coursework altogether. So what's your prescription? What should teachers learn if it's not educational theory? You're right. I'm not willing to give up on, on, on coursework yet. And the reason is, uh, other research has shown that everybody does have what I call in the article a mental model of the learner. They basically have beliefs about how children learn, what their emotional lives are like, what motivates them, and so on. And so I think there is an opportunity to um, make that model, that um, mental model of the learner, in teachers' minds informed by what scientists know about how kids learn. So what I want teacher education to focus on is things that we know about how kids learn. So focus on sort of regularities in children's behavior. Things like here's the type of experiences that children have that leads to long-lasting memory. Um, here's the type of experiences children have that they are likely to be sort of cognitively overwhelmed or that they is likely to lead to frustration. Uh, that's the kind of thing I want them to know. And I, uh, I also suggest elsewhere, I think it's not, didn't end up in, in the Education Next article, uh, that a, a sort of smidgen of theory, a sort of a little bit of proto-theory would be useful just to coordinate these generalizations, make them easier to remember. But basically, it's a very different type of theory than the type of theory you'll find in educational psychology textbooks because it's the type of theory that a researcher wouldn't find useful at all. Um, it's a way of uh, just summarizing existing knowledge without trying to push existing knowledge forward. So I'm trying to keep the aspects of theory that are really useful uh, and jettison the aspects of theory that I've described as destructive. Um, and if any of the listeners to this podcast are familiar with um, my writing, especially in, for example, in Why Don't Students Like School and also in The Reading Mind, this is exactly the type of model that I use in those books to help explain how kids think and how, th uh, how kids read. Yeah, I actually had the sense in this article that you were to some degree trying to put yourself out of work, at least as a translator of scientific knowledge, to say that the type of writing you've been doing should be what teachers are experiencing in their own programs. Well, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've been trying to put myself out of work for uh, most of my career in education. I guess all of us are. 
uh, in some sense. Um, but you're right. The, another way of viewing this article is, uh, and I, I sort of saw this after the fact, that it was uh, really a justification for the way that um, I've been treating educational psychology throughout my career. Uh, it very much describes what, what it is that I try to do. Now, you concede that some of the types of scientific observations or these empirical regularities that you think it would be useful for teachers to know about how kids learn are now present in the curricula at teacher preparation programs. One problem with picking them up is the distraction of theory, but you also suggest that teachers just don't get enough practice with the principles they learn to fully absorb them and thus make them useful. How can we address that aspect of the problem? Yeah, that and, and that uh, that I think Marty is is really going to be challenging. So, this is um, this general idea that um, future teachers are exposed to useful content, but then don't get enough practice in it. Um, this has been raised before nationally. There was a panel put together by the American Psychological Association that uh, issued a report in 1995 on exactly this problem. Their prescription focused on educational psychology textbooks and the idea that the, the principles were kind of abstract. And so what teachers needed was more examples of real-life classrooms. So like there should be an accompany, a, a DVD accompanying a textbook where you could see classroom situations and then the professor could point out how the theoretical principles you were learning played out in the classroom and so forth. Um, a, another committee got together in 2011 to evaluate whether the recommendations of that 1995 report had been followed, and they, uh, they suggested that it had, and textbooks had really improved on this dimension. I think that's terrific. I think it's not enough. Uh, but the reason I say that is that one, um, a parallel during that time, there was other research going on that looked at uh, whether abstract principles that you learn in a class, you are successfully able to apply in new situations. Um, and what they found is one class is not enough. In a way, it's not that surprising. So in other words, if you take a course in deductive logic and you learn how to do the typical sorts of problems that you would encounter in that sort of class and you, you, know, you do well on the exam and so forth, if I give you a problem that would, uh, could successfully be solved by using deductive logic, the fact that you've been in that class is not going to help you solve that problem on average. That's what this research showed. It's very depressing if you're a college <laughs> professor. Uh, so people straight out of this class basically don't recognize that they have relevant knowledge for this problem. So this is exactly what teachers face. They take a course in educational psychology. They learn these principles about how kids learn. Uh, but then they're in a different situation, a different context. They're not very likely to recognize how those principles play out. So the solution is having, uh, encountering these principles in more than one course. So the study I mentioned in deductive logic showed that if you had more than one logic course, all of a sudden you're a whole lot better at recognizing those principles in everyday situations. So what we would need to do in, uh, in teacher preparation programs is you would have a course in educational psychology or foundations early in the program, which is what most of them typically do, but then you would have to have coursework 
going forward that was coordinated with that early experience so that if you are in uh, adolescent literacy uh, and I'm in uh, elementary mathematics, both of us are referring back to principles uh, learned in that first course. And the professors, when they're teaching you about adolescent literacy and I'm learning about uh, elementary math, those, we're, we're seeing how those principles play out in our particular domains with uh, our particular age kids. The extent to which that's done now, it's very difficult to say. Um, Anecdotally, just in conversations with uh, professors and deans at various schools of education, I think it's probably not happening that much. Uh, and you can you can speak to this uh, this issue yourself, Marty. I mean, uh, as, as a professor, I know most of us think of ourselves as, as sort of the kings or queens of our classroom. We're not that eager to have the content um, of our courses influenced by broader curricular concerns. That's exactly what I'm suggesting ought to happen here. Yeah, as a professor, I do find this aspect of your argument uh, a bit depressing, but also quite compelling in a field that I'm more familiar with, uh, statistics. I always tell students that they actually learn the content of introductory statistics in the second or third course they take in our sequence of quantitative methods courses where they actually put the foundational concepts that they learn initially to use. So I sort of find uh, this recommendation that there be more opportunities for aspiring teachers to do that compelling. I also worry a bit about the, you know, anytime you create additional barriers to entering a profession, whether it be additional coursework or additional requirements of any kind, I worry about what that means for the supply of prospective teachers who are willing to do that. But Let's set that to one side and say that we're convinced that your prescription is correct or that it's at least worth testing, which I think is the argument you're ultimately making in this article. How would we go about doing so? You just mentioned the difficulty of persuading professors to change what they do in the classroom. I assume there would be changes needed to textbooks, program structure, uh, as well beyond courses. So. Yeah. What would be the first step? Yeah, it would, it would be a big bite, I think. I think a, a natural first step is not to think of this as happening at the program level, uh, much less the school level, but think of it as sort of a coalition of the willing within a program. So have a small set of students who go through a pilot version of this program, uh, and if you get some encouraging outcomes, uh, then think about scaling it up. Uh, so I'm suggesting a very, very typical approach. I also think that pilot data would go a long way towards convincing reluctant professors uh, to, to take on the work of changing their courses and, and allowing course content um, to be influenced by broader curricular concerns. Uh, because one thing I think that uh, all of us would find very persuasive is you know, uh, high-quality data indicating that students benefit from um, uh, a new uh, a new training regimen. So I think I think that would be the that would be the way to think about it. And what outcomes would be we be looking at to figure out whether that pilot was successful? What do you think would be convincing to professors, as you just suggested, but also to the broader field? 
Uh, ultimately, it's got to be uh, student learning outcomes. You, you need to show that teachers who have this content knowledge uh, end up with students who learn more than teachers who don't have this content knowledge. Uh, that's what would ultimately be persuasive to, to make it happen. I think that if I were involved in a pilot like this, I wouldn't just focus on student outcomes because if it doesn't work, I'd also want to know why. So I would want to measure whether or not um, future teachers are, are learning the content that I think I'm teaching them in the first place. And then I want to know if they're learning it, can they recognize it in the wild? Can they recognize these principles in classrooms? And then third, if they can recognize these principles in classrooms, are they actually using them once they're uh, in the field? This is, these are all just stages at which this, this hypothetical uh, uh, chain of causality could break down. Um, but ultimately, you know, all of those things need to be in place. And then finally, not only do they need to use it, but it, it needs to be more effective. Students need to learn more. Well, I think you've just laid out a model for a pilot program and an evaluation of that pilot. Uh, so when do you have a meeting with the folks at the School of Education at UVA? <laughs> uh, that's still pending. <laughs> all right. My guest today has been Daniel Willingham, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, and the author of Unlocking the Science of How Kids Think, available now at educationnext.org. Dan, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Marty. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.